back when I was in secondary school, a popular put down was you're a letdown. Like it was the worst possible thing to be a disappointment to your friends. In fact, it wasn't even just your friends. Anyone in the classroom might call you a letdown. It was peer pressure in action. A letdown. But you see, what was quite funny is that the same tactic was being employed by teachers, maybe even parents. You know the old phrase? I'm not even angry. I'm just really disappointed. You've let us down. You had everything you needed to succeed. But you've gone and let us all down. If you've ever really been told that seriously, you'll probably remember. Because it's not nice to be called a letdown. It's not nice to be a disappointment. But Isaiah begins chapter five with a love song of familiar style. Look at verse one. My beloved had a vineyard on a very fertile hill. He dug it and cleared it of stones and planted it with choice vines. He built a watchtower in the midst of it and hewed it hewed out a wine vat in it. Look, here's Isaiah singing about the one he loves. And the one he loves has a vineyard. And he gives every care and concern, every provision, everything that is needed for it to bear fruit. Everything. It has the farmer's deepest care. What would you expect from that vineyard? Well, look at verse two. He looked for it to yield grapes. Everything had been done that you'd expect a good harvest, a good crop. And he looked for it to yield grapes, verse two, but it yielded wild grapes. And wild grapes, they might sound okay. They might sound a bit funky like a new flavour of Fanta, but the literal translation is, stink fruit the fruit is rancid it's a disappointment the vineyard had everything possible to flourish and it produced an awful awful crop not just bad but the kind that would make you feel physically ill the kind of grape that when you put it on your tongue the taste and the feel, it just stays there. You can't get rid of it. It makes you feel physically ill. It is absolutely rancid. A disappointment. Isaiah continues his song. Judge between me and my vineyard. What more was there to do for my vineyard that I have not done in it? And look, it's a bit confusing because Isaiah, he takes the voice of the farmer. He speaks as his beloved why? Because he takes the side of the farmer. As he asks the question, what more could be done? Is obvious. The fault cannot lie with the farmer. What more could be done for this vineyard that's not been done for it? But look at verse 7. Look at what's going on in this picture. Isaiah sings about God and his vineyard is God's people 
And you see Isaiah, he's contrasting God's amazing, lavish grace on his people with the disappointing outcomes that we've already seen through the book. It's what we've seen in chapter one, the hypocrisy, the corruption. In chapter two and three, the people's attempts to exalt themselves and find beauty and and worth and value and all the other things but in God. And you see, in this picture, as Isaiah sings of a vineyard, we're shown every reason to take God's side. The picture shows us why God's course of action is right. The picture shows us that God is completely justified in expecting good fruit. God's saying to his people, I've done everything for you. And that's maybe where it becomes a bit uncomfortable. That's maybe where it's a bit close to home because God, in his unbelievable grace to me and you, is right to expect good fruit. That's the reason the characters are obscured in a love song. It's for emphasis that we're meant to appreciate that what's expected of the vineyard is right and fair. We know what that frustration is like, even if we're not gardeners. When you pile your effort and energy into something, you give it all that it needs and it lets you down through no fault of your own. The song invites us to see God's disappointment. But you see, the reality is true of us. God's been so immensely gracious to us And yet so easily what we produce, like his people then, is stink fruit. You see, if the characters weren't obscured in a love song, if we were just told that God is right to tear down his people, verse 5, that God is right to lay them to waste, verse 6, we'd say, hold on, that's not fair. Because like them, We think the situation is okay, but we're wrong. He is fair. It's not okay. Because remember, Isaiah, he's writing to God's people, and it is so clear from what we've read already in the first few chapters that they've let him down. And now, when things are at their worst, this is what God has to say. Look at verse 7. For the vineyard of the Lord of hosts is the house of Israel and the men of Judah are his pleasant planting. And he looked for justice, but behold, bloodshed for righteousness, but behold, an outcry. Isaiah's using wordplay here is clever. The words he uses for what he looked for and what he found, they're really close in spelling and sound in the original language but they're completely different in meaning. So it's something like saying, did he find right? Nothing but riot. Did he find decency? Nothing but despair. Do you see everything that God should expect from his people? What he gets is the opposite. And in in verses eight to 30 that we didn't have read, What we get is God's response, God's woe to wickedness, to a people completely embroiled in sin, deeply bound up in a state of confusion and disorder. 
the fruit that God was expecting, the fruit that is right to expect, well, what's produced is exactly the opposite, exactly what it shouldn't be. And so in these verses 8 to 30, what we get is a list, it's a, a fleshing out of that stink fruit. And Isaiah paints this picture in a chiasm. It's another literary device from Isaiah. Remember his style of writing. Maybe you remember GCSE poetry, the style of a chiasm. It goes A, B, C, D, C, B, A. It's like a mirror that, and it climaxes at the main point of the argument. Here, Isaiah flows inward from the kind of more resultant stink fruit right to the very core issue. These woes are directed at the sin of God's people. So all we're going to do just for a few minutes is to walk through them and let them ask some penetrating questions of us. A. A woe to greed. Verse 8. Woe to those who join house to house, who add field to field until there is no more room. Are you obsessed with your personal project? Salary, mortgage, job title, five-year plan? Does that fill your brain until there's no more room? It's a woe to greed. Be woe to ignorance of God. Look at verse 11. They have lyre and harp, tambourine and flute and wine at their feasts, but they do not regard the deeds of the Lord or seek the work of his hands. Are you so consumed with the pleasures of this world that you don't regard the deeds of the Lord? Do you enjoy God's things and not give a care for him? What is it that gets you through the day, the week, the term? Is it an unhealthy fixation on wine? food, holidays, sleep. So woe to ignorance of God. C, woe to being consumed by sin. Verse 18, woe to those who draw iniquity with cords of falsehood, who draw sin as with cart ropes. Then maybe that's a, con a confusing sentence. Picture a horse-drawn carriage. The horse, it draws along the carriage. It's a burden to it. The, the ropes take the strain, yet it steadily pulls along that burden. Here's the picture. God's people pulling along sin with cords of falsehood. Pulling along the, the weight, the burden of sin. If only they would let it go, but they're so consumed by it that they won't break the cords. Is there sin in your life that you're failing to break the cords of? What is it that you're dragging along ashamed of but not letting go? Consuming you, believing the lie of sin. Woe to being consumed by sin is D. Woe to those mixing good and evil. Look at verse 20. Woe to those who call evil good and good evil, who put darkness for light and light for darkness, who put bitter 
for sweet and sweet for bitter. Look here, right at the centre of the chiasm, the climax, the main point, here's the diagnosis of sin once again. A broken down, estranged relationship of God's people, it's led to hypocrisy and corruption. But at the very heart of the issue, the people swap the truth of God for a lie. And the result is this stink fruit that Isaiah is fleshing out, the exact opposite of what you'd expect. Instead of good, evil. Here's a desperate diagnosis that, that people can't even notice in themselves. Good has been swapped for evil at the root of the stink fruit is an attitude that says no to God and his goodness. See, woe to being consumed by sin again. Verse 21. Woe to those who are wise in their own eyes and shrewd in their own sight. Are you so consumed by sin that you fail to see that what you're doing is not right? Where is your character blind spot? Have people told you, oh, you're like this? Or people said of you, oh, that's just them, that's who they are, that's what they're like, and you brush it off, you fail to address it? Is there something that you're constantly trying to justify? It's just who I am. Or, oh, I'm just being clever. Woe to being consumed by sin. Be again, woe to ignorance of God, verse 22. Woe to those who are heroes at drinking wine and valiant men in mixing strong drinks. Woe uh, who acquit the guilty for a bribe and deprive the innocent of his right. Is that what you're like? So consumed by the personal pleasures and pursuits of this world that there's no desire for upholding God's justice. There's no concern for those that are in need. The final A, the, the final woe is um, woe again to greed. It's in chapter 10, verses 1 to 4. It simply takes the form of social injustice. It just comes a bit later. Maybe you could write a note uh, to read verses one to four in chapter 10 later. But look, in this chiasm, as, he, as Isaiah fleshes out the stink fruit, why is he doing it like this? What is it that he's doing? He's giving a full picture of the stink fruit, of the let down vineyard, of what's going on in the midst of God's people. And look, out here at arm's length, around the edges, it's uncomfortable. It's not ideal, it's greed, it's inequality, it's social injustice, but right at the heart of the issue is a people totally consumed by sin, who've rejected God's goodness and display wickedness. And God's anger rightly burns against wickedness. Read verse 25 with me. Therefore, the anger of the Lord was kindled against his people. And he stretched out his hand against them and struck them. And the mountains quaked and their corpses were as refuse in the midst of the streets. For all this, his anger has not turned away and his hand is stretched out still. Look, 
It's an absolutely brutal picture. Mountains quake with God's anger. Corpses lie as rubbish in the streets. God is angry at wickedness. It is truly shocking. And yet, it's what we rightly deserve for our stubborn, disobedient, unrepentant hearts, our rancid stink fruit. But when things are at their worst, there is hope from despair. And it begins with Isaiah here in chapter six, because what we get here from chapter five to chapter six, it's like the most magnificent camera pan in all of history. You know, in Lord of the Rings, where it pans between scenes and one moment you've got the absolute chaos of a raging battle. The music is heavy and intense. There's death, bodies on the floor. They're getting trenched in mud. There's rain. It's dark. Everything about the scene tells you that it's chaos. And then it pans to the tranquility of the hobbit skipping along the path to some lovely music or the most soothing elf voice with flowing white hair or Gandalf on the back of a horse, hair flowing in the wind with the most amazing mountainous scenery behind him. The cinematic switch changes everything. But this is better. See, we go from the end of chapter five, we've got rebellion, chaos, judgment, to chapter six and Isaiah's vision of the throne room. And we see Isaiah's Isaiah's vision is a vision of hope for the wicked. Because Isaiah has a vision of the Lord. Read with me from verse one. I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne high and lifted up and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him stood the seraphim. Each had six wings with two covered his face, two his feet and two he flew. And one called to another and said, holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the foundations of the threshold shook at the voice of him who called and the house was filled with smoke. We get a glimpse into the throne room of God. It's filled with seraphim, literally means burning things. They have to cover their eyes because God is so holy. Everything in this vision shouts of God's holiness, his overpowering, amazing awesomeness. And Isaiah sees the Lord. And look at his response when he does, verse five. Woe is me, for I am lost, for I'm a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips, for my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Let in that moment, Isaiah recognises the most important thing in the whole world. What matters is where he stands before a holy God. We live breathing his glorious air, eating his glorious food every day, continually oblivious to his glory being displayed all around us. But here, Isaiah sees it because it is completely unavoidable. And he says, he's lost. 
what right does he have to be there? He doesn't belong. See what his first words are in response. Woe is me. And you see, it's the complete opposite of all the woes that God had to deliver. Isaiah's not self-absorbed. He's not trying to prove himself. He's not mistaking good and evil. He's very aware that God is holy. And he is not. It's a complete switch from the ugliness of human rebellion to the beauty of God's perfect holiness. And when Isaiah sees it, he confesses his own sin. And what's God's message in response? Verse seven, behold, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away and your sin atoned for. Isaiah's unclean lips are made clean. The coals, they're touched with tongs, not just because they're hot, but because they're holy, taken from the altar of perfect sacrifice. The message of what's going on is consistent with what we've already seen promised in Isaiah. God provides a way to make sinners clean. Though your sins are like scarlet, they'll be as white as snow. Your guilt is taken away. The message is consistent. God saves sinners. And it's on the altar of perfect sacrifice that the coal was taken from because the perfect substitute of the Lord Jesus is the way that can take place. The righteous for the unrighteous. To bring wicked, stink fruit producing sinners to God. Look, maybe in the first couple of weeks of Isaiah, you've been struck by how holy God is. How he's angry at sin. How he will judge. How he's completely pure and cannot have sin near him. Maybe your response is, woe is me. I'm lost. I'm a man of unclean lips. I'm a woman of unclean lips. But you see, it's in that very moment when we recognise God's holiness, when our own sin is exposed, that as we are turned to God, he says to us, your guilt is taken away. Your sin is atoned for. And we see that we're not just wretched sinners, but deeply treasured by a loving God who wants to restore that estranged relationship. And in that moment, as that offer is held out to us, we can find perfect peace. Have you accepted that offer? Are you daily accepting that offer? Or are you clinging on to guilt? Are you riddled with shame? Are you obsessed with your own sin rather than God's glory? Will you remind yourself that you are deeply treasured by God so much so that Jesus went to the cross to bring you back? Because he was desperate to restore 
your estranged relationship. Remember Isaiah's job as a prophet is to speak to God's people, a message on God's behalf. Well, look, here's Isaiah's grim message in verse nine, his commission to his people. Keep on hearing, but do not understand. Keep on seeing, but do not perceive. Make the heart of this people dull and their eyes, their ears heavy and their blind their eyes. It's a message of right judgment against persistent rebellion against God. It's a consequence of relationship breakdown. It's the consequence of people building themselves up against God. It's the consequence of a vineyard producing nothing but stink fruit. This was the grim reality of the people of Judah and Jerusalem who faced an imminent invasion. But it's a grim reality for us. People will reject the truth. See, Jesus uses these same words. People will be um, never perceiving. 1 Corinthians 1.18 says the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing. And you see, Isaiah, he asks a question, verse 11, for how long, O Lord, must I deliver this message? But there is hope in the response, in God's answer. Look at verse 13. And though a tenth remain in it, it will be burned again, like a terebinth or an oak, whose stump remains when it is felled. The holy seed is its stump. See, God's response to Isaiah is that he will judge, but not with finality. God will preserve a living remnant, a leftover, who are responsive to him. To a land that's producing nothing but stink fruit, to a land that's about to be chopped down and destroyed to just a stump. Here's the amazing promise. The holy seed is its stump. It's an unfolding prophecy for the first hearers, through these garden metaphors that we're getting, they're told that even in the midst of siege and destruction of God's people, there is hope. Here's how that hope takes shape later on in chapter 11. Chapter 11, verse 1 says, There shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse, and a branch from his roots shall bear fruit. Jesse is King David's father. In the line of King David was promised the Lord Jesus in the Lord Jesus, the offer to Isaiah extends to us. Our guilt is taken away and our sin is atoned for. See, even though today in and of ourselves, we are a wicked vine with no hope of producing anything but stink fruit. We're deserving of God's right judgment. We have a real hope today because God's judgment was not total. The siege of Jerusalem that was quickly afterwards didn't wipe out the line of David. The Babylonian captivity didn't destroy God's people ultimately. But if we recognise our position, if we see God's holiness, then we can trust in the work of the Lord Jesus, the holy seed. In the Lord Jesus, the offer extends to us. Your guilt is taken away. Your sin is paid for. Jesus says in John 15 verse 1, I am the vine, you are the branches. If you remain in me and I in you, you will bear much fruit. Apart from me, 
you can do nothing. See, in the Lord Jesus, we are being transformed to produce, to flourish, to produce his fruit, not ours. This evening, if you're very aware of your own sin and God's holiness, that is a good thing. As our faces are turned towards the glory of God, it means that we can wake up each morning trusting fully in the Lord Jesus. That in him we have forgiveness. In him we have a sure hope. In him we can flourish as we are meant to. Because we've been grafted into the true vine. The holy seed. Let me pray. Father, the picture of human wickedness is uncomfortable. But Lord, as we look at ourselves, it's maybe more uncomfortable. Father, please would you turn our eyes to see your glory. That we would trust in the Lord Jesus and all that he's done for us. That in him we would flourish and bear your fruit. Amen.